Till I'm Tiptoed you. Dot com. The podcast about pop culture, black history, and spirituality. Yeah. It's about to be a great vibe. Dr. Tip. Gonna take it away. Till I'm Tiptoed you. joining me for another edition of Tell Em Tip Told You. Um, I'm excited to talk to you guys today. I have some things I want to talk about um, in particular. One is the use of words and language when we describe the opioid um, crisis uh, in white communities. Um, I also want to talk about something that happened to me last week, a meeting I attended and why it's important that we advocate for our children. I also want to um, talk about because of our children, why better is demanded of us. And then I want to follow up with some homework to get us again ramping up to 2018. So, you know, if you've been listening to the past couple of episodes, we're getting ready for 2018. We're not waiting until the new year. Um, We're setting our habits and getting the momentum going now. So let's just jump right in. So, you know, people are talking about the current crisis um, with methamphetamines, with heroin, um, with uh, pill addictions, et cetera, et cetera, that are happening in white communities. And um, when we look at the statistics, um, they are using these drugs way more than people of color are. And what we see as a result is that the language around addiction is changing. Now, for any of us who are concerned with mental health in this country um, and or with health care in general, then we're happy to see the change in how addiction is treated. It, it is an illness that deserves treatment. But we also um, cannot ignore the difference, the disparate rhetoric that's being used now when the population is different than it was in the 80s, 90s when crack cocaine was quote unquote the issue in our um, country. We allowed politicians to declare war on drugs, right? Something that would not be talked about now, that is not being talked about now. Nobody's talking about a war on meth or a war on heroin, or war on prescription pills. They're not talking about that. But when it was crack cocaine um, being used by our communities, at the same time white communities were using cocaine, you know, powder cocaine, um, the rhetoric is different because there was a war on our people. And not only was there a war on the adults, children, a mythological diagnosis called the crack baby, Um, was invented. And if you follow the science, then you know that was largely disputed. These babies were no different than than babies born to mothers who were not on crack. It was something largely um, created by uh, politicians to advocate for what they wanted to advocate, which was this war on drugs. Um, and, And our people were victims of that war. We had, uh, that's when the incarceration rates, which were already uh, abysmal, climbed through the roof, nonviolent crime offenders, um, crack cocaine, um, eliciting sentences way more than that of powdered cocaine and other um, illegal substances. It was just ridiculous, the rhetoric that was used to vilify our communities and those people who needed treatment. And right now, if you're a heroin Attic, there are places in urban areas where you can go get you some smack and administer it in the, in the safety 
of a facility with medical per personnel in case something goes wrong. They never had anything like that for crack addicts. Um, we won't even talk about how the substance has gotten our communities in the first place. Um, but I think we who are informed need to be continually pointing to this kind of rhetoric as evidence of the disparate treatment that our people continue to have. That when something like that, our, our children who were victims of, of crack in the 80s were never given opportunities to have their records expunged, were not given opportunities for treatment, um, for group homes and things like that. And again, anyone who cares about children in general is happy to see that change, but I still can critique the system that will treat one population and leave, a, and leave another population to die. So I just wanted to point that out. So as, as uh, mass media in the United States continues to focus, focus on this drug crisis, the growing addiction crisis in the U.S., don't forget who they're talking about and who was thrown to the wayside um, when we had our own epidemics in our communities. I can't believe they attacked our babies like that, calling them crack babies. And educators were believing that stuff and treating our children as if they were incapable of learning. And it was a, it was a travesty and it was a shame what happened. Entire generations have been lost um, because of the epidemic and how people treated our children. And speaking of the children, I'm, I'm moving off of that. Speaking of the children, I had an opportunity to go to um, a collaborative meeting here in Southwest Georgia. Now, um, throughout the United States, in public education, there is, um, as a result of research, an increased desire to form collaborative connections um, between and among P through 20 um, institutions. That's preschool through graduate school, you know, university. Um, and many of these, unfortunately, are collaborative on paper at best, right? Because they're not authentic. They're done because the state is mandating it um, without, you know, without a whole lot of direction in, in the form that these relationships take. Um, some of my work, um, the work I've done with colleagues is being documented on a historical model for collaboration that I think works best for our communities. When it gets closer to time for that work to come out, I'll tell you more about it. And maybe we can have the other authors on the podcast to talk about it, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, so I'm at this meeting, right? And in this meeting, um, the first thing that stands out to me is we're in Southwest Georgia. Southwest Georgia is rural. Okay. Um, and a lot of the urban areas in Southwest Georgia, which for real really aren't urban. They just called that cause that's a cold word for race. So a lot of these districts are predominantly black. And so when we walk into the room, uh, myself and another representative from our HBC, when we walk into the room, um, we were the only two people of color in the room. So instantly I'm like, um, this is not, you know, representative of the population we're serving. I'm already in a slight mood, right? You know me and my moods. I'm already in a slight mood. Um, and then after a few minutes, you know, a couple more sisters come in. But again, it's just four of us in a room of about 25, 30 people. Um, but you know, hey, it is what it is. I adapt wherever I am. <laughs> I, um, I went to school in a lot of predominantly white spaces, except for my HBCU experiences. So I, you know, I know how to operate in those settings. Um, and the agenda for the meeting is set. And supposedly our mission is to create marketing materials uh, to increase diversity in the U.S. teaching workforce, to, to 
recruit more diverse teachers um, in the state of Georgia, in particular Southwest Georgia. Um, y'all. Can I say that although that was the um, charge for the meeting, that the only time race, culture, or ethnicity was mentioned was when I did it? Like, how are you recruiting diverse teachers and you can't even use language around diversity? Like, uh, there was one Latina sister in the room. Um, she, she said we should have a hashtag that, clue, you know, cued into Latinas. I agreed because I had just said we need a hashtag for blacks, black teachers in particular. And, you know, so we, we went through that and I talked about how we needed to consider gender um, diversity and sexual preference diversity and all these kinds of things. If we're talking about diversity, right, um, we have to use the words like we can't be afraid to talk about the difference. For some reason in U.S. parlance, when we talk about racial, ethnic, cultural, sexual, and I know why. When we talk about difference, it tends to mean deficit in the U.S., but that, because that's how it's kind of been. Um, but I think it's important for us to understand that difference does not equal deficit. So if we are really recruiting teach, more teachers of color, we have to go after them specifically based on their identities, right? We can't be ashamed of that language. I think that's one of the most clever games that white supremacy uses is that it makes us afraid to talk about difference. And we can't be afraid to talk about difference. We can do so without deficit. But I don't think that these people in the room understood that. Now, let me tell you the other beef I had. So, you know, I keep giving these recommendations. I won't even go into detail about all of them. But they were getting, you know, very condescendingly brushed aside. And finally, someone says, you know, we're, we're talking about recruiting middle school students. Well, then why the hell are we talking about Twitter and printing brochures? That's not how you market something to middle school students. When was the last time you guys had a relationship with middle school students? Definitely not black and brown middle school students. So we're having a whole discussion about Twitter hashtags and you want to use hashtags like teachers rock? Be a peach teach? Inspire teach? Who, what middle school student is Googling those hashtags or is searching for those hashtags or using those hashtags? You know, you guys obviously don't know the population you say you want to serve. And I gave the recommendation of, you know, instead of spending money on PSAs and, and brochures being printed, how about we do some summer programs, right? We do some, some camps. But no, you don't want to do that because the reality is you want to give lip service to diversity, but you don't want to do the work. And you damn sure don't want to be in conversation with middle school students who can tell you to your face, this is foolishness. Y'all, when I left that meeting, I was, um, I haven't been that angry in a very long time. Like, I get angry. Y'all know, you know me. I get angry, but I haven't been that angry in a very long time. I was so angry um, because this is, I looked at that room. These are the people who are making decisions about how public schooling happens for our babies. And they can't hear the women of color in the, there weren't any men of color in there. That's another point. You can't hear the women of color in the room say, this is what our babies need. You can't hear that because somehow your training marks you better than receiving my experiential knowledge. Really? Tell me more about these middle school students who are going to be using the hashtag Teachers Rock. 
Tell me more about these middle school students who are going to read brochures full of statistics on the employability of teachers in the state of Georgia. Please tell me more about those people. Cause I ain't never heard of them. They don't represent my students. They don't represent the students I work with. I, I don't know who you're talking about. And the fact that you can't hear me say that is a whole nother thing. I'm going to recommend that um, oh, there's a wonderful article. I teach it. I, I use it every semester. There's a wonderful article by Lisa Delpit called The Silenced Dialogue. It's particularly about literacy studies. But I really think she does a good job fleshing out um, how uh, teachers of color are silenced a lot of times in these spaces. And I think until we deal with that, then the public school system, the reform, if we can call it that, that is undertaken continuously in the public school system will continue to be ineffective. <clears throat> Excuse me, because you're really, you say you're targeting these students, you say you're targeting these ideals, but in reality, you're giving lip service to it and you're not willing to do the work. You're not even willing to talk about the work. And I can't sit in spaces like that. Like you might continually shut me down and be condescending to me. And I might be 10 seconds away from losing my job because I can't keep my mouth shut. But let me say this. I believe it. People laugh at me when I say this, but it's the truth. I believe God put me on this earth to disrupt some narratives. I'm going to make it. You are not going to be able to have those conversations in my presence and me not do my best to disrupt them. To ask the hard questions, to push us the, the, the rhetoric I want to push and try to disrupt your narrative about the pathologies in our communities. That's what's demanded of me by my egum, by my ancestors, by my community, by my elders, by my nephews, the babies that I love. That's what de is demanded of me. That's the work I was put here to do. And I'm going to continue to do it. I'm going to continue to do it. And I'm going to push every chance I get so that when people are sharing information in and around our students, and especially about our students, I'm going to be there to push the narrative that protects our students and polices the environment around them. That's my responsibility. I see that as my sacred responsibility, and I'm always going to do that. I'm always going to do that. Now, speaking of that, I think it's important that we push all of us Every one of us pushes each other to do and to be better. I had a conversation with my students Friday, not Friday, Thursday, because I don't go to campus on Friday. I had a conversation with my students Thursday uh, about their um, lack of want to read. They don't want to read like that. And they don't have a problem telling you they don't want to read. They don't have a problem telling me when they don't read. I'm, I'm glad. They, they're not the kind of students who lie to me. The relationship that we have, they don't lie to me. If I ask them, did you read the homework? They're more likely to say, uh, we read the first paragraph and the last paragraph like you told us. And that's probably, you know, all we did. So I'm glad that they're honest with me about that. But I had a, a real heart to heart. No judgment. I wasn't Dr. Pogue in the morning. In that moment, I was Tiffany. And I wanted to know what we could do to get them to read because reading is so fundamental to a lot of the stuff that's happening right now. Y'all, um, that old adage that if you want to hide something from black people, you put it in a book, you know, we shouldn't allow people to say that because the truth is ain't nobody reading. 
not just black people, ain't nobody reading anymore. And if you read, that's one of the things I learned at Emory. If you read the whole text, you can run circles around people because nobody else is reading the whole damn thing. So they try to articulate what, what thus saith the author. You can eat them up because they haven't gotten past page 12 to know that the author contradicted themselves on page 13, you know, whatever. But you have to be willing to put in the work to read, and it requires discipline. Now, in a minute, I'm going to talk about how I'm being a hypocrite right now, but let me finish what I'm saying. It requires discipline, right? And we have to hold each other accountable to that. We have to be willing to put in the time and the effort to unpack and to engage texts. Let me tell you what makes my teeth itch. is when you're having a discussion with someone, and they say, I researched this. And what they really mean is I Googled it and read the first two or three hits. That ain't research. That's not research. We got to stop people from using that word. You're not going to trivialize what I do. Because I damn sure do a whole lot more than that. Right? You can't. First of all, we have to teach each other what's the difference between a referee and a non-referee source. Do you know the context of it? Who published it? Who's funding the publishing? What is that publishing house? What is their, what is their niche? What do they normally publish? Is it a vanity press? Right? Or does this come from a triple blind uh, peer-reviewed journal? Right? These kinds of things. Um, we have to teach each other how to engage texts in that way so that we are better informed when we're having conversations. We have got to push each other towards that kind of excellence in thinking. And let me say something about that. What, what brought that up was that earlier today, some black people were having a discussion about um, a holiday. I won't even say what, what the discussion was or any of that because it was foolishness. Let me tell you something that irritates me about black people. Black people in the United States in particular, because of our history, because of the way our culture and our people have been vilified over time and space, we should be the last people to vilify and demonize someone else's cultural practices. That's not cute. That's not cute. Like, it makes my teeth itch. I can't stand that shit. And then if you're going to if you're gonna critique someone else's cultural practice, right, I'm going to need you to be at least informed about what the cultural practice is. And that means that you didn't just cite, y'all for real, somebody cited the Jehovah Witness website as a referee source. Baby, what are you doing? And you're talking about a cultural practice that's not theirs, that they're critiquing. Like... No, that's not how research works. And you keep invoking the term research. No, bitch, you Googled. That's, oh my God. We have to do better. And I'm not saying I'm always right. Please, I am willing to learn and to accept constructive criticism from anyone. But I also demand that in return. And if you're going to critique someone else's culture especially when you're doing it the same way people have done with our culture, I'm going to need you to be a little bit more careful. A little bit more careful. And I don't need you to think that Googling equals research. I'm a question who gave you your degree if you got one. And if you don't have one, I'm going to need you to take and... I, 
Y'all, I can't, I can't even finish that conversation. I just want us to do better. There was a, um, and it's not just, you know, lay people. It was a, um, I, I forwarded it on my private Facebook page. I can't remember who said it. But this, this guy was saying, you know, some of us get in trouble. We don't get in trouble. But some of us have gotten too used to um, playing the bibliography game, the footnote game, where we're just citing our friends, which is important. If we know how academia works, it is important for, for scholars of color to cite one another. This is the only way we can try to get some leverage in this game, right? That is important. But as he was pointing out, if you're only doing that and you're not engaging the seminal texts in your field, that's a, that's a problem, right? So even um, those, I'm, I'm saying all of us have to do better. I have to do better. I have to do better with engaging the text that I disagree with, right? If they're seminal works, because that's how I push myself in my thinking is to engage ideas that come from other perspectives. And let me say this, I think, I think partially because I am so confident in what I know and how I know it, um, black folk aren't used to engaging other black people on that level. So no, if I know something for sure, I'm going to say it with authority. I teach my students this. One of the things I think the U.S. public school system does is conditions and socializes children to be unsure of their choice, unsure of their idea. And if you listen to a lot of young people talk, especially in rural urban areas, if you listen to them talk, they use a lot of words like basically and like I think, right? Because they're conditioned not to trust their own ideas. And then when they encounter someone like me who speaks with the authority of knowing my texts, of knowing the work, of knowing the data, then it feels like I'm being condescending towards you. No, babe, I'm just saying the truth. And I might correct you. That doesn't mean I have a tone with you. That means I'm pushing you. My students will tell you I believe in pushing them. In fact, I'll say sometimes in class, okay, I'm about to push y'all. That's the only way you get better. Iron sharpens iron. I can't rub you with cotton and expect you to get softer. That's some bullshit. I don't know what kind of coddling the West has conditioned us to take with our children. We can't do that. I was uh, Another brother was um, talking today about how we shouldn't be using baby language, language with our kids. You can't. Not if you want them to develop um, an, an impressive vocabulary. Speak to them. Model the language you expect of them. And so because of the level of engagement I know some of our oppressors take when they're engaging texts, I'm going to push you to that because that's, that's what we have to do to be competitive. And I don't feel bad about doing that. I'm going to continue to do that. You cannot, I told y'all before I believe in excellence, don't come before me with no halfway shit and think I'm not going to open my mouth. That just ain't going to happen. That's not going to happen. So if you say something in front of me and you don't want critique, you better make sure your shit is on fire. That's just the way it is. That's the way things work. And I've studied rhetoric, so I'm going to attack your basic premise if it's faulty. Right? I'm old school HBCU. I know how to attack an argument. And unfortunately, a lot of these, I'm jumping, but I'm going to say this and now I'm going to move to the homework. HBCUs used to do such a good job with preparing us for the world that we live in. 
And we have abandoned that mission. And now that the world we live in looks just like the one when we were started, I think we need to reclaim some of these things. One, we had to take etiquette. You had to know um, elocution, how to articulate, how to speak well. You, you had to know, at, at, at fam, um, if you wanted to be in business, you should know how to play tennis and golf. You know, these kinds of things and whatever you want to call it, it is a way of being competitive in a certain kind of world. And one of the other things that I think HBCUs train their students well with was how to articulate an argument and how to dissect one. I was talking to one of my sister girls this week and she was talking about how she's teaching her black male students um, syllogism. And I, I'm just... Yes. Yes. We have got to get back to that as a community because somehow we've lost the importance of that. We have to know how to quickly pinpoint someone's premise and determine if it's faulty or not. And if it's faulty, I can make the rest of your shit fall down. Like we need to be. Oh, my gosh. We, we, we got to do better, y'all. That's all I'm saying. We got to do better. All right, I'm getting off of all of that, all of that. I'm going to talk about the stuff I really wanted to talk to tonight. So, so far in our push for 2018, we've become better stewards of the gifts we've had, right? So the blessings we've already received, we're becoming more thankful. We're putting them to better use, et cetera, et cetera, right? We good on that? I hope everybody's good on that. Um, we have read through or are continuing to read through our old journals, Right? We're identifying our patterns. We're making notes of those patterns. We're at night before we go to sleep. We're visualizing our ideal life and we're taking notes about the patterns the ideal life takes. Right? What is your new job? What, is your, what does your mate look like? Do you have a mate? Right? Maybe you, know, you want to get rid of the, the, the foolishness that's been with you for the last five years. Whatever. You, know, you want to do those things. Now here's your new homework. I want you to use the information from your visualizations and from your patterns to come up with a five-year plan. There's a template on the website. Um, so make sure you go to the website, www.tellemtiptoldyou.com, and download the template for the five-year plan. What I want you to do is to start five years from now. That's 2022, right? So 2020, well, let's do 2023 since we're about to be 2018. 2023, I want you to categorize where you are based on those visualizations, right? So if you're in your visualization, you are the dean of your college um, or you're the regional manager for your division, um, whatever it is, or you're a college graduate or you've, got your, you've attained your, your doctorate, whatever it is, put that in your 2023. And then what I want you to do is to divide that goal up into five incremental steps. So if you want to be dean, um, you might want to be program coordinator for a year. You might want to uh, apply for and be a project director for a grant for a year or two. You might need to be a chair for a little while. Break it into those incremental steps and use those for your yearly goals. All right. So that's your homework. Now, what I have on my five-year template that may be different than some people have, I have a mission statement and a goal. I'm sorry, and a purpose. I think it's important for you to record your purpose. Why are you doing this in the first place? Right? I want you to talk to yourself in that. Nobody else has to see your five-year plan but you. Unless you have an accountability partner. We can talk about maybe um, sharing accountability 
uh, needs on the Facebook page later. Um, maybe next week we'll do that. But <clears throat> for now, write your purpose. Remind yourself why you're doing this in the first place. It could be a personal statement. Nobody has to read it but you. Something that you can read at a glance and remind yourself, oh, this is this is what I'm on. This, this is why. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is why I'm trying to become Dean. This is why I'm trying to live a legacy. This is why I'm trying to pay off my debt. Whatever it is, whatever you, you know, your primary goal is, why are you trying to reset your life at this point? Let that be your purpose statement. And then I think you also need a mission statement. Who are you and why? Like, what are you living for? And that one's going to be harder to do. That one might take some time. And, and don't rush it. Really, really, that is something. It might take years to get there, but start somewhere. You know, start with a small thing, whatever you start with. And understand both the purpose and the mission and the five-year plan. Hell, it's dynamic, right? It should grow as you grow. And as things change, it needs to be updated. I need to update my five-year plan. I'm going to start working on that tomorrow. That's part of my self-care Sunday tomorrow is to work on my five-year plan. Um, based on the, the homework we've been doing together. So that's your homework. Um, I've been, I rushed through this. Sorry. I rushed through this tonight because, you know, I don't know. It's been a lazy Sunday. It's kind of rainy outside. Um, if you can't hear it, I don't know if I have a cold or my sinuses are going. I don't want to make a whole lot of excuses. Um, but I, I just want us to do better. I want us to do personally better, and I want us to do better as a community. I want us to push each other to excellence, and I want 2018 to be the best 2018 we can make it through deliberate. Oh, I told you I was going to tell you how I was a hypocrite. So I realized um, earlier today, I really realized that I have a huge problem with people who aren't disciplined enough to read and to do real research. Like, I realized that today. That's, that is one of my major pet peeves, right? And then, like, when I was all up in my feelings about being angry at somebody for, for not reading and researching, it was like a still small voice. I know which one of, I, I don't know which one of my Ed Goons said it. I just know Ed Goons said it. And they were like, uh, there are plenty of areas in your life where you're not disciplined. And that's true. When it comes to food and working out, oh, your girl ain't got no discipline, y'all. I'm like, I'm. oh, let me not say it that way uh, because, you know, words sounds have power. Let me say it like this. Your girl struggles with discipline in that area, but I'm working on it, okay? It is, and, and I am trying, now, now with that message from Edwin, I'm trying to figure out what it is about me being so passionate about wanting to learn and to make sure I'm excellent when it comes to information about my community. How can I take that and apply it to my physical well-being? Because I'm always trying to make sure my mental and my spiritual well-being are tight. It's the physical well-being that, that slips through the side. And, what, and, and in some of my reflection today, and again, this is new, so I haven't thought about it a whole lot, but in some of my reflection today, I realized that all the, the stuff from all the other areas of my life, it gets dumped on that. Like everything takes a back seat. No, I'm sorry. I said that the wrong way. 
Physical well-being takes a back seat to the mental and the spiritual well-being. So if I come home and I'm tired, I'd rather crash with a book than to get my ass on this treadmill that's sitting right here. Um, if I'm having a really stress, I love food. I'm a foodie. Um, and I'm also an emotional eater. So if I'm having a very stressful day, I'm not trying to come home to no meal prepped brown rice and dry ass chicken breasts. I'm trying to go somewhere and get some pad thai, some chicken tikka masala with some naan, some butter. Oh my God. With a mango lassi. Oh, that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do. So I've identified that area of weakness for you. I need to work on that. I need to work on that. And I need to shift my thinking instead of getting so aggravated by people whose weakness is their discipline in learning and researching. And remember that I also have an area of weakness that I need to work on as well. Um, so those of you who are disciplined in that area, just like I would push you on the research, push me. I'm open to it. I'm built for that, baby. We can do it. I'm competitive, too. So, you know, maybe that's what I need is somebody to, to, to compete with so I can show you I'm the show enough shit. Maybe that's what I need to do. Anyway, I'll figure it out, just like I'm sure all of us will figure out. One thing I do have is hope. I do know that we can all be much better than we are now. I have faith in that. That's what keeps me going. I appreciate you for listening to me today. <sighs> Despite my rants, I love all of you. I really, really do. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. Tell them to told you. Bye.